back with episode two of The Run Lab. My name is Brendan Ip from Ip Physio, a registered physiotherapist based out of Vancouver, British Columbia. For those of you who did not tune into episode one, we talked a lot about the foundational aspects of the mechanics of running. So make sure to scroll on back and have a listen. But The Run Lab is a new project of mine uh, that I hope will be an informative and up-to-date podcast breaking down the process and physiology behind running the most common injuries and the novel ways to treat and correct the imbalances that cause them. Along the way, we'll explore fun, interesting, and frequently asked topics such as how to get into running for the first time or how to break through plateaus, as well as today's extremely exciting topic. And boy, do we have something for you today. Shoes! Today, we will be talking about shoes. That's right. Now, everybody loves shoes. And I'm not just talking about regular shoes, we're not talking about stilettos, we're not talking about sneakers, wedges, or wingtips, we're talking about running shoes. Now, for anyone out there that's ever owned a pair of dedicated running shoes, uh, you know how much of a beating they can take, and over time, whether it's years or if you're a more avid runner, sometimes shoes only last you months, and nothing feels quite like buying a new pair of running shoes. Now, some of you might have a pair of running shoes at home, maybe even two, right? Sometimes you've got an old pair lying around that perhaps wasn't a great fit, or maybe you didn't like the color, or maybe they're just not as sturdy as they once were, so you don't wear them as much anymore. Others who are more frequent and avid runners, you might have three, four, or even five pairs of shoes. And the funny thing is, this actually reminds me, so I have this working theory And don't laugh because in full disclosure, this theory is not based on science whatsoever. But I have this theory that for each day that you run during the week, you're allowed to justifiably own one pair of shoes. So if you run four days a week, then you can own up to four pairs of running shoes. Or at least that's what I'm going to tell myself to help me sleep better at night. But no matter the case, today we're going to break down the components of what makes a running shoe the types that are out there on the market, and how you can pick one that makes sense for you no matter what your skill level is with running. Because the type of shoe you're going to want to get depends on what you're trying to do. Someone who's trying to crack a sub-130 half marathon is going to buy a very different shoe than someone who's looking to get into running for the first time as a means of getting more exercise. And as always, for those of you tuning into this podcast for the first time, The information presented today is based on research, clinical experience, and my own thoughts and preferences, and is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. So if you're suffering from a specific injury or condition, please seek help from a registered physiotherapist or other qualified health practitioner so that you can be accurately assessed or diagnosed. But let's get to it. What makes a running shoe? Now, running shoes have many different components, but they all have one function. Firstly, No matter what shoe you choose, it has to comfortably keep your feet in a biomechanically safe position. Now this kind of depends on the individual because no one shoe fits everyone, but we look for this in order to prevent the dreaded overuse or repetitive strain injury from that repeated contact with the ground. Secondly, your running shoe has to efficiently salvage as much energy as possible from when you land, and it has to turn that kinetic energy into stored elastic energy in order for you to help the recoil on your next step to sustain and create that momentum. Running shoes can do this in a variety of ways, either using structure, such as a heel-to-toe drop, or more simply called the drop. Um, They might also use different materials, 
such as lightweight foams that can absorb and redistribute energy, or more popularly, use innovative technologies like carbon fiber plates in order to decrease the energy demand on your muscles to begin with. But we'll dive into these features a little later. We're going to start off by talking about the different parts of a running shoe. So first we're going to take a look at what we call the upper of the shoe. This is the first thing that you see of the shoe because this encompasses all the fabric on top, all the colorful tones and the lightweight knits that you see on the shelf the moment you walk into a sport check or a running room. So the material that you see, that knit or that mesh, that's called the upper fabric. This encompasses the fit of the shoe or how well it hugs to the shape of your feet. Now, on a lot of shoes, you might see thin, sleek, perhaps shiny or reflective pieces of tougher material attached strategically to different parts of the upper fabric. Um, these bits are called the overlay. Um, sometimes the brand's logo is made out of this tougher material as well. Um, but this overlay is used by these shoe companies in order to decrease the amount of fabric they need to use. So it provides some structure and shape to the shoe while allowing the company to just cut down on materials so that the shoe can be lighter. Then we move to the tongue of the shoe. So you're familiar with the tongue of shoes, um, but this serves to not only pad the sensitive top portion of your uh, foot from the laces, uh, which is actually quite important as the tongue um, can, act, uh, can often cut off circulation or bruise your foot if it's too thin or it's too short. Um, but it can also serve to keep pebbles or other debris from getting into the shoe. So here you'll find a few different types of tongues. Uh, some tongues can attach to the bottom near your toes. Some attach on both sides using elastics. Um, and some only attach on one side, uh, which is called the burrito tongue. Um, then we move into the most important part of the front of the shoe, which we call the toe box. Now, the toe box is where there's a lot of variation between brands and models. Uh, but regardless of what shoe you choose, you have to make sure that the toe box is supportive enough to keep your foot secure when you land. So you should feel minimal shifting, um, but also it should not compress your feet width-wise. Um, and it should instead allow and adjust for your foot to splay out comfortably when you make contact with the ground. Moving towards the back of the shoe, we've got what we call the heel counter. Um, this is actually what many people don't look at. So the heel counter is usually a little bit of internal or external fabric that provides stability to the heel. And an improperly fitting heel counter based on your own individual foot anatomy can mean that you feel shifting on initial contact with the ground or even slippage, uh, which is every runner's nightmare because it can cause blisters on the heel, which limits your tr uh, training, limits your ability to even run. And uh, that kind of moves us into the next few components. And these next few components are how we really dive into separating and distinguishing the function of one model of shoe versus another, not simply the aesthetics and the fit. So the midsole is the middle layer of the shoe and is responsible for cushioning and the transfer of that kinetic energy to store elastic energy. It's typically made up of a variety of different foams, which we mentioned a little earlier, and I'm gonna try to keep it as simple as possible, but I'll highlight a few common types that you'll find in many shoes so that you have an idea when you come across it when you're shopping for running shoes. Now, EVA foam or ethylene vinyl acetate has historically been the most common type of foam used. It's relatively light, it's soft, and it's cheap to produce. 
but it does have a tendency to compress and flatten over time. So this can be an issue if you're relying on the one shoe in your rotation and you're wearing it day in, day out. Um, it also has a tendency to become a little bit more rigid in cold weather, um, which may not affect you, but it is something to keep in mind dependent on where you live because some climates could be colder than others. Some newer types of foam will include uh, PU foam, polyurethane, or TPU, thermoplastic polyurethane, and uh, these foams are a little bouncier, and they're more durable than EVA foam in that they don't uh, shape uh, and change in, in uh, shape as much, they don't compress as much, um, and they're also resistant to temperatures. Uh, TPU being even more temperature resistant than PU foam, uh, but this does come at the cost of being heavier. Lastly, due to its popularity, Nike's carbon fiber plate shoe, the Nike Vaporfly 4%, and the Nike Next% Percent contain a new material called PBAX. Now, PBAX isn't proprietary to Nike, but they've popularized it and they've used its flexible chemistry in order to create a structure that is well known for great energy return and its ability to maintain its shape. And conveniently enough, it's lighter than both polyurethane and thermoplastic polyurethane. Now, under the midsole, you'll find an area between the heel and the forefoot that we call the footbridge, or some people call the shank of the shoe. Now, the footbridge is really important, as this is the transition area of the shoe. The footbridge can be more rigid, or it can allow for some torsion or twisting. Now, you might think that a running shoe, particularly if you're running long distances, should be really rigid to give you stability and support. But depending on your own individual anatomy, you might actually be making initial contact unevenly. So a shoe that allows for some torsion might actually allow for you to adjust as you touch the ground to make it safer and to minimize the risk of injury. But you also want a footbridge that is rigid enough so that when you push off that forefoot, it provides a rigid base and springboard to load and explode off that forefoot to create good momentum. So a little bit of flexibility and torsion is good, but you also don't want too much. And that's why I personally feel that the footbridge and the material it's made out of is actually one of the most important components of a running shoe. Lastly, we'll talk about the stack height or the heel drop of the shoe. Now think about this in two ways. There's two features here. Firstly, how much cushioning is under the heel? The most accurate way to measure this is to literally take a set of calipers and to measure it yourself. But most companies make this information readily available. So a quick Google search of the make and model of your shoe will tell you how much height in terms of millimeters is under your heel. Secondly, however, the comparison between the cushioning under your heel and the cushioning under your forefoot determines what the heel drop is. Now the heel drop is important because it shapes how your foot lands. A shoe with a high heel drop in other words, there's a lot more cushioning under the heel than under the forefoot, which shift your point of initial contact backwards towards the heel. A shoe with a low heel drop, however, in other words, the cushioning under your foot is relatively flat and level, would encourage a more midfoot or forefoot strike. Now, many of you are going to be scratching your heads and you might be wondering, but Brennan, you didn't say anything about minimalist shoes. Well, now I will. Now, it's an age-old question that you've probably heard arguments for going both ways. Whether you should be wearing minimalist shoes, so shoes that have minimal cushioning, or maximalist shoes, so shoes with more cushioning. You've probably heard people swearing on their lives that barefoot toe shoes are the way to go, or that super-conditioned stability hokas are the only way to prevent arthritis. Now, that is not to say that either of those camps are wrong, and I hate giving an answer that seems indecisive or isn't clear, 
but it really depends. But what does it depend on? It's really as simple as the statement that one size does not fit all when it comes to running shoes. Not everyone overpronates and not even all overpronators need stability shoes. Do cushioned maximalist shoes make sense for some people who are more at risk of joint injuries? Yes. Do they make sense for all people who are more at risk of joint injuries? No. At the beginning of the episode, you'll remember that I said the type of shoe you're going to want to get depends on what you're trying to do. So ask yourself this, what distance are you going to be running? What kind of terrain or surface will most of your running take place on? Is speed or tempo going to be of importance? Or are you simply going out to run more often at whatever speed the legs feel like going? Do you have any prior injuries that you don't want to aggravate? Are they recent? Right? All of those features will dictate what kind of shoe you want to get. In the past, I've talked a lot about the mechanics of running and how understanding what is happening in your body during the different parts of the running cycle helps you to isolate which part of your body is working the hardest at which point in time. If this concept seems foreign to you or you just want to go over it again, I'd recommend that you go back to episode 1 and skip to about 1122 timestamp in order to listen to it again. But generally speaking, the faster you want to go, the more minimal you will want your shoe. For a couple of different reasons. As we said earlier, a minimal shoe tends to have a small heel drop or actually none at all, hence the term racing flat. Without a large heel drop, the shape of the shoe encourages the contact point on your foot to shift towards the midfoot or forefoot. Now, I'm a visual person, but if you're not, take a second to pause the podcast and try to picture being on your forefoot instead of your heel. What happens when you shift the contact point forward is that you engage your ankles as an extra joint that can provide propulsion. Think about when you're playing sports and you're trying to be light on your feet, ready to go at the drop of a pin. What are you doing? You're bouncy and you're on your toes. It's the same thing when you're looking to increase your speed while running. But speed isn't what everyone's after. Heck, if anything, most people aren't after speed. Most people are out to get fit. You know, maybe a friend talked you into going out for a local running group, or maybe you've got a little bit of cabin fever and you just want to get out, loosen up the legs, get some exercise. When the appropriate muscle groups aren't conditioned for running, you might benefit from a shoe with more cushioning. And this actually brings me to an interesting point. Now, there's a debate sometimes in the industry around why 80% of the population seem to want a heel strike. Because if it were completely up to personal preference, you would think that you'd find a split closer to 50-50, half heel striking, half striking on the midfoot or forefoot. So the debate is this, do we as a population tend to heel strike because of the invention of heavily cushioned footwear? Or did we develop heavily cushioned footwear as a solution for the heavy preference towards heel striking? And if it's the latter, then why do we heel strike so much to begin with? One thing I tend to see both in my own experience getting into running and in in the running of patients that I see for analysis is that when you start to look at more elite demographics, the proportion of forefoot strikers tends to increase dramatically. Now it's important to note though, just because the so-called pros forefoot strike, that does not mean that everyone should forefoot strike. A critical thing to keep in mind is that if you make contact with the ground a certain way 
and you're performing well, you're progressing, and your running is getting better without causing you pain, then keep doing it. But I digress. Let's get back to shoes. After all, that's what you guys are here for, right? So now that we've gone over the key components of what makes up a running shoe, the minimal versus the maximal shoe debate, the reason why you're running, it's time to get into specifics. So in this next section, I'm going to be going over a quick scan of the running shoe landscape, give you some quick suggestions no matter what type of running shoe you're looking to get into. Full disclosure, I am not sponsored nor am I given any incentives for mentioning any of the brands or manufacturers that I'm about to talk about. My thoughts on these makes and models of shoes are exactly that, just my own thoughts. But where do we start? There's so many shoes. Um, well, seeing as how it's the talk of the town as of late, particularly given last month's U.S. Olympic time trials in Atlanta, Georgia, and the buzz around the Nike Super Shoe, let's talk about the Nike Vaporfly Next Percent. So, the Nike Vaporfly Next Percent is Nike's industry-changing carbon fiber plate shoe. It is important to note that many other companies will be releasing their own carbon fiber plate models in the next month or two, but Nike was the first one to market. They started out with the Nike Vaporfly 4% a couple years back, and then they released a prototype Nike AlphaFly Next Percent, uh, which the world-renowned marathon runner from Kenya, Elliot Kipchoge, was uh, wearing to unofficially break the sub-two-hour marathon mark, uh, which in theory is a world record but just doesn't count officially. Okay, So he was wearing that prototype to break that record, and uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but you know, uh, Kipchoge is very likely considered to be uh, one of the greatest marathoners in modern history. Um, he has won about 12 of 13 marathons he has entered. He is the reigning Olympic gold medalist uh, due to his masterful performance in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro uh, Olympic Games. And, you know, it, it takes a long time to understand and learn that there's actually a lot of strategy with running. And when you race, you don't just go out and crank out the same kind of kilometers that you do back home. There's planning your splits and how fast you start. There's drafting, just like in Formula One. And there's even strategic timing of nutrition and gels to give you a boost when you need it most. So um, Kijoji is, is just a kind of a, a role model of mine. And uh, he's also in an interesting position where he can become, I believe, the only the second person in history to win back-to-back -back Olympic gold medals in the marathon uh, when he crosses the start line uh, for Tokyo 2020. Um, or actually 2021 now for the Summer Olympics next year. Uh, I am fangirling a little bit, but I just get excited because whenever I think about the amazing things these runners are accomplishing, and to see the passion of mine but at the highest level of competition, it's inspiring. But once again, we come back to the notion of improvement. And every single time I lace up my shoes to go run, I have the chance to better myself and beat a previous time. Now there's a few other brands out there that I would recommend runners out there take a look at regardless of whether you're a beginner or just looking to add a reliable shoe into your rotation. The following shoes are what I consider to be the flagship shoe of each of these brands and I'll quickly run through why I think each of these would be a good place to start shoe searching. So the Mizuno Wave Rider. So what should stand out about the Mizuno Wave Rider is that currently it's on the 23rd edition of the shoe and you don't get to 23 versions if the design is anything less than great. The models didn't change much from year to year, but with minor improvements, so if you're somewhat of a creature of habit, this might be a good place to look at for your perennial, you know, old reliable. 
Now, I've personally had both the Wave Rider 21 and 22 and will likely get the 23 or 24 when it comes out when my current ones are ready to be retired. At a glance, the Wave Rider 23 weighs about 235 grams for a women's size 7 and about 270 grams for men's size 9. So it's not the lightest of shoes, but serves a very specific purpose. It boasts a 12mm heel drop and uses a proprietary foam called Euphoric and Euphoric X on the heel to cushion your landing a little more. It's considered a neutral shoe that is also known to be very durable, so it's actually a great shoe to log a lot of miles on in training. One thing that stands out to me is the fit of the Wave Rider. Due to a knit option for the upper fabric and a well-designed heel counter, the whole shoe locks in and feels like an extension of your foot, and it's actually one of the few shoes that I've never needed to break in. Mm. Lastly, um, Zuno is known for a good neutral structure and with a good fit for those who have flatter or wider feet, but still, if you do need an even wider version, they do have a wider version available. Next up, we've got Socketing. Right? So Sockney's been around for ages and it was really tough to choose here because they have so many amazing shoes, but we'll try to stay on trend and focus on shoes that become a good staple uh, in your rotation. Now this brings us to the Sockney Triumph ISO 3. Um, actually I think it might be up to 4 now, but if you're looking for a slightly lower profile, better ground feel, lower heel drop shoe than this, then you could look at a very similar Sockney Freedom ISO line. So. The Triumph has a heel drop of about 12 meters for men and 10 millimeters for women, whereas the Freedom has a heel drop of 5, so much lower, much flatter, in both the men and women's versions. Once again, both of these are neutral shoes, so do not uh, offer any kind of forefoot stability or correction, um, but it's you know clearly meant for people who don't need it. The Triumph weighs about 245 grams for the women's model and 305 grams for the men's and then the Freedom line is about 30 grams lighter for both genders. The thing that stands about these two models are that the ground feel of the shoe. So for those who want to start working on their speed or just prefer to be able to feel a solid contact with the ground, this might be a good choice as it gives good feedback when you push off the ground. Needless to say, the Freedom would be the shoe to choose if you're an intermediate runner or you simply want to go a little bit faster but not give up on that conditioning. Whereas the Triumph gives you a little bit more of that old school thick heel conditioning and cushioning for the long runs. Now, any conversation about running shoes would not be complete if I did not mention one of the longest standing shoe franchises in the history of the sport. And that would be the Nike Pegasus line, which is now up to 36 models as of the recording of this podcast. Now, the Pegasus 36 comes with a 10 millimeter drop, which is very respectable and weighs in at around 280 grams for a typical men's size 9. Now Nike has released some spin-off models from the Pegasus line that utilizes uh, the same Zumex foam that you find in that Nike Super Shoe that we mentioned earlier, the Vaporfly 4% and the Next Percent. Now it has the same Zumex foam but does not have the carbon fiber plate. Okay. So the Pegasus line doesn't have a lot of fancy innovative technology, but it's a tried and tested line and it's proven year and year in, year out and performs. So the newest 36 should not be any different. Now, one difference is that Nike did change some of the attachments of the lacing system and the thickness of the round of the tongue. So that could possibly adjust how the ankle sits, 
So for those of you who are pickier about this, since it can be a point of contention, then I would suggest that you go into the store and try it out beforehand because there's nothing more annoying than a shoe that you know and love fitting a little weird. One thing to note is that Nike has been known to run a little bit narrower though. So I would say that the construction of the upper fabric does allow for some stretch. So the Pegasus might actually be a better fit once you get about maybe 100 kilometers onto the shoe. But for those of you that are a little bit more flat-footed or simply have a wider foot, you might like the fit of the Nike Zoom Vomeros instead, uh, which in their own right is an amazing shoe and it's up to its 14th edition and is actually currently a shoe that I have in my rotation right now. Um, so there you have it. Um, I know that was a very brief overview, um, but it was not meant to be an in-depth lab analysis or breakdown of each model, but simply a summary to point you in the right direction of where you might want to look if you're in the market for a running shoe to not only get you from point A to point B, but to start you on your running journey. So as always, if you have any questions, feel free to leave a message on Instagram at runlabyvr or at it underscore physio or leave a comment on the website at www.ip-physio.com forward slash blog. So get on up there, lace up your shoes, whether they're new or old, take them for a spin around the block, and remember that we are made to move. And once again, my name is Brendan Ip, and I'm extremely excited to share my thoughts and passion about running with you all. So tune in next time to The Run Lab for more tips, techniques, and explanations about the science of running. See you next time.